unless you're just writing checks uh, blindly, you probably need to speak to people, do some analysis, do some follow-up, do all sorts of things. Well, that is you going to the sideline, looking things up in the middle of the game. This is Oversharing with Mikhail Alphon. What is up, you lovely listener? Welcome to another episode of Oversharing. As always, I am super pumped on today's episode, but for this one in particular, because today we have a serial entrepreneur who is the co-founder and CEO of my favorite application, x.ai. And it's absolutely one of the best investments I've made in my productivity and in my time management over the last five years. No joke. But today we're also going to talk about how you can maintain focus even while starting a business as a parent, we're going to talk about the importance of the bootstrapping mentality when starting your business. And we're also going to talk a little bit of rock and roll. But before I speak too much, let's allow Dennis Mortensen to overshare. How you doing, man? I'm happy. Life's good. And I'm saying that with the utmost empathy for the fact that it's not necessarily good for everybody. But certainly, at this very moment in time, family is healthy. My daughter's at home. The office is right next door. Everything is <laughs> up and to the right from a business metrics point of view. So I'm just uh, generally happy. You know what? I, f- I feel similar. And I- I'm excited to dig into that because after I did a little bit of like, research on you, I realized that there's a lot of reasons as to why you can be happy today. And it's not necessarily just because business is good. But it- I-, I think that you've had such great discipline, great systems put in place to kind of lead you to a point where you can say that. So I think that's incredible. But before we get into any of that, I'd love to know, what were you like in high school? Ooh, high school. When I was 11 or 12, the movie War Games was on the telly. And the very next day, I bought my first computer. (laughs) Those years thereafter, end of middle school, and as I went into high school, I would almost run home and spend either four hours on my BMX and or four hours on my Commodore. And I did that for seven, eight years until I entered college to do my CS studies. Mm. So uh, that was very consistent. I was on that bicycle or on that keyboard throughout that period. What were you doing on the keyboard? We did mostly game development. Mm. And I did game development in college as well. Not that you need really to fund college back home. So I'm Danish. That's where the accent is from. So school is free of charge. If, it, if anything, you actually get paid to go to school. So I, you get paid about $1,000 a month to go to school. Wow. So it's the complete opposite. But still, if you want a few extra dollars, you do a little bit of work. And I did, did game development. Speaking of a few extra dollars, you were knocking door to door at the age of like 13 selling fruits to your neighbors. Is that right? So so the funny thing is that my dad, my uncles, cousins, and what have you are all entrepreneurs, perhaps not in the tech crunch sense of being an entrepreneur, but entrepreneurs in the sense that they started a business, made sure they made enough money for where family could get something to eat and did so their whole lives. Many of them were in the door-to-door sales-like types business. So we just copied that as kids for where if you want to make anything at age 11 or 13 
or nine? Well, here's a template. And the template was one for where I go buy for 30 kroner some pool of fruit from my dad, and then you go door to door. And I've probably done, when I look back, 10,000 door-to-door sales calls, if you think about it, uh, or what would kind of mimic a SDR sales call before I even enter college. And if there's anything, and you don't really look at it like that, all you want is just the next ACDC album, uh, which, by the way, was my very first CD, I noticed. <laughs> uh, that was the very first CD I bought, an ACDC uh, album. Ended up buying all of them. and still love it, by the way. But you didn't think of it as some sort of training or stamina or grit for your future as an entrepreneur. But once you've knocked on 10,000 doors, you learn something which is very kind of difficult to describe, but, but you learn something from that. One of the skills that have had me survive in this environment for 24 years. That's interesting that you say that because I actually, I have a personal belief that like everybody should take a sales job at one point in their lives if they really want to kind of excel to the next level. You learn how to deal with people, things like this. But at the age of like 13 and doing this, for one, that's extraordinary. But for two, how are you dealing with people saying no at such a young age? And like, what was your closing ratio out of like 10,000 people that you were talking to? This is not some sort of study. This is all just based on uh, opinion, but I knocked on more than five doors. So I certainly have enough data to kind of see how it converted just for me. And my conversion rate uh, back then would probably be somewhere between five or 10%. So reasonably uh, high, but that's when people open the door, then there's uh, a funnel, right? For where you will go out uh, either on the weekend, uh, early, or after school. So they might not even be home. And for that, there's some sort of lottery because it was a different time, but about you know every second door would open up. So I need to do at least kind of short of 30 houses to close a sale. But at that age, you didn't think of it as a no. And it's not like you ran some sort of CRM system here. It was just one for where that seemed natural because you didn't know any better. So it's not one of these for where many people have this uh, frightening moment before they kind of dial the number or knock the door of what might happen here. And it's probably going to be negative. We just never did that translation. I couldn't kind of transpose it into that. It was just one for where, well, I knock on a door. They might or might not be home. If they're home, I'm going to be uh, giving them my spiel. And the spiel is one, well, I'm now a thousand times in, so I'm pretty well rehearsed. I'm not confused about what I'm about to say. And we might have played on our age, but not by design, but just by the fact that we're just kids. Right. Now, I'm not coming really here to do anything, but just ask you, we got a few apples of this sort, a few apples of that sort, and this is the price, and we can haggle a little bit. And so they did. And if we agree, I make a few monies. But that happened so early that I don't think we've yet built up some of that kind of set of emotions that come when you arrive, say, in high school, where you can barely ask a girl out on a date for where, shit, she might say no. We just didn't, didn't see that. And that might just be a, be a learning for where if you just get kids into it early enough, they just overcome that and it becomes mm. uh, supernatural. Yeah, that's amazing, man. I kind of relate it to uh, 
I used to snowboard a lot and you'd see these like 10, 12 year old kids trying backflips off of everything. And, you know, they don't know what it's like to break a bone yet. So it's like, so they have a little bit more uh, courage in that spot. But as you get a little bit older, you're like, you know, I've felt this before. Like, I don't know if I want to try that yet, but you got it out of the way pretty early. I think you're absolutely right. So we've been hours on end on that BMX, like really invested in it. But again, we were so young for where we didn't, we hadn't broken anything yet. So some of the stuff we did today, even though, and my wife keeps telling me, because I have this kind of recurring fantasy where I should buy a bike again and kind of, you know, run the streets of Manhattan. It's just, but you don't have it in you. But in my mind, I do. But back then, we just weren't scared to do some of those tricks for where there goes your ankle. Then it's, <laughs> I say, that is, that's a flip of a coin. But, you know, you try it out. We just didn't think about that. Right. A hundred. What I love about your story is you're on your fifth venture now with the X.AI, which is incredible. And we'll get into that. But you have three successful exits. I think in one interview, you said uh, one of them went tits up, which I thought was just a funny expression. But what I find most interesting about that is that you had children or child, two kids or one kid? I have uh, two girls. Yes. And yes. I have them throughout all ventures, by the way. Exactly. That's the thing. So I find that to be really extraordinary because one thing that comes up a lot with a lot of the people that I talk to is like, oh, I have kids and like, I can't do this or I can't dig into my business this much because of my kids. What has been your secret to build successful companies, sell them off while being a parent at the same time? I will pick two items, whether they replicate and will be of any value to any other set of parents out there. Uh, First, just as a... As a footnote, I, I do hope that I can be, if anything, just a small voice encouraging you as a parent to still go do that venture. As in, it is very much possible. And at least know that there's people who both tried it and survived it and will be advocating for it, not as some sort of horror story, but as in, I don't have any regrets of what happened throughout or I didn't see my kids for eight years or something yeah. like that. Well, me and my wife are still together today, 25 years later. So it certainly is possible. That's the footnote. The two bullets I would add to that list for where I'm sure many parents will have a whole host of bullets here is one, kids, especially when very young, will push you to apply a level of focus that you might not either be able or willing to apply before you had kids. So many of us will remember before kids going to the office on a Saturday, spending seven fucking hours to do a two-hour job because you're kind of uh, just doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. No, you were here to do that particular campaign or that particular creative or push that piece of code to production. And it is a two-hour job, but you turn it into a seven-hour one because you could. When you get kids though, a different type of focus arrived, which is my wife was a nurse early on. So I would have the kids. She'll be at work and there's no kind of uh, backing out, but I'll just uh, take a walk with the kids. They would fall asleep. And I now know the clock is ticking. I have two hours and I'll go to my laptop and I'll work for two hours, but I'll be super focused and very committed. And I'll know exactly where to I was able to do what I set out to do. So that's certainly the, the first one, which is not visible before they arrive. Because all it looks like is that 
what used to be uh, 40 additional hours a week on top of what was otherwise available will now just disappear because I need to apply that attention elsewhere. You will be more focused. Number two is, and I'm not sure I got the right words for it, many people, myself included, will end up being a little bit, not afraid, but cognizant of the fact that they will be different people on the other side of having kids, as in, there's things you dare to do today that you might not dare to do tomorrow once you have kids, mm -hmm. as in, there's only so much risk I can apply when I have kids for where it was just me, I might be willing to apply more risk. That could be one uh, dimension here. What I found, though, is that I did change, but for the better, on a set of uh, dimensions along that of being an entrepreneur, if you're in a sale, uh, let's stick to that particular skill, and you cannot not do sales as an entrepreneur. Even if you are the uh, founding CTO, you'll be selling everybody all the time, as in mm. selling your other engineers, particular frameworks, selling new hires, selling investors, selling the press, selling everybody all the time. Now, as a parent, what I found was that if you don't have anything outside of your current setting where you can say, these people love me without any conditions attached to it, you might just show that. As in, you might just show your hand. As in, you might show up at a meeting where it actually looks like Dennis is afraid of losing this particular sale. Mm -hmm. Once that shows, it becomes harder to close it. Once it shows that he seems very comfortable in losing this sale, and it sounds almost counterintuitive, but I'm sure the best salespeople who's listening to this will both know and agree that if you are very comfortable in your solution, in your pricing, in your delivery, in your offering, in whatever you think is the strongest kind of position of it, if you are willing to walk away, you'll actually need to walk away less often. I found that after I got kids that I would just lean back more, even more enthusiastic about the solution, but be even more comfortable with, oh, if today isn't the day, let me try to kind of describe how you can kind of come to decide when the day should be, but Give me a ring when you're ready. And that ring, yeah, we can just do it now then because it seems like Dennis is only here to help me. As in, he's not even here to help himself. Why is that the case? He must be really confident about what he's got in store here. And that just uh, kind of clicked later on, not immediately that, you know what? No matter what happens today, I can just walk home and those three girls... They'll love me no matter what, whether I make this sale or not. That was just really good. And that just worked along many things. I said, when I wanted to hire people, when I wanted to raise capital, when I just wanted to kind of speak to the press, speak to the world, you just end up seeming very comfortable because you got nothing to lose. I said, sure, I can lose some money, some customers, lose space. But you know what? I already won in life. As saying, I'm on the other side. You guys are on this side. I'm on the other side. I'm on the other side of the river. It's all good. 
Man, uh, I thought you were a cool person before we talked, just through a couple of tweets and on LinkedIn. But the more I talk, the more I listen to your story, the cooler I think you are. Especially learning that you're a big ACDC fan. You're reading what the biography of Mike Tyson. I'm a big boxing fan, which is really interesting. That which kind of goes into my next thing. Like Mike Tyson's such a focused guy when he was beginning and starting. One thing I found interesting with you is that although you're a serial entrepreneur. It doesn't sound like you were not the type of guy to be working on a project and then have 10 other projects going on. You were focused on one thing in particular. Can you talk a little bit about how important that is for potentially the aspiring serial entrepreneur to just focus on one thing? Given the most likely outcome of any new venture, whether just a side gig or massively and heavily funded VC-backed startup, because they're all really the same, which is that they are things that do not yet exist, yet you think should exist in the future, but you will probably die along the way. And that is okay. As in, that is just a sentiment I have come to accept and acknowledge that there's nothing wrong in not surviving as long as the journey is fun and exciting. Now, given that is the most likely outcome, you should probably try to think about what are the things I can do to increase the probability, not to determine that I will overcome the obstacles, just to increase the probability. And what I found in my own set of experiences is that if I at least try to treat this like any professional athlete, which is that if you want to win this particular game, you should probably focus on that game. I said, let's pick the most kind of silly of examples. Somehow uh, you made it to the World Cup and uh, you're in the finals. There's uh, 11 folks on your team. We're talking soccer. At no point in those 90 minutes will you go to the sideline and look something up and say, hey, I've been thinking about something. Let me just look this up. I said, that would just be crazy talk. But somehow when we do our ventures, it seems okay, personally, I've been a huge fan of uh, as an entrepreneur, that other entrepreneurs will say, ah, I do all these kind of angel investments on the side. Hey, good on you. Uh, best of luck. But unless you're just writing checks uh, blindly, you probably need to speak to people, do some analysis, do some follow-up, do all sorts of things. Well, that is you going to the sideline, looking things up in the middle of the game. That is Mike Tyson. Round three, kind of starting to speak to people in the audience, like, that's not going to fly. Right. I said, this is it. Every round is three minutes. you got to focus. And, and the more I tried to kind of come up with analogies that would justify it, the harder it became for me to come up with those analogies. Because every analogy that I came up with, certainly if I looked to kind of professional sports as a good backdrop, seemed beyond silly. So I've just never been able to kind of at least justify it to myself to do anything but my venture. But that doesn't mean that you can't have a life with your family and do things with your kids. That's not what I'm saying here. It's just that if this is the one thing I want to put into the world where it's probably going to die, but I think I can increase the probability, you should just play that game to the best of your ability. So when I get to the end, I'm neither embarrassed or attest any apologies to the fact that I didn't win because I, I think and I know that I kind of played a good game. 
you can ask me why you didn't win or come up with a set of reasons for, well, you know, the opponent was stronger, I wasn't fast enough. I picked a particular strategy, which now in hindsight wasn't the best one, but I played the best game on the day, which is why I feel very comfortable in coming back and playing a new game. I've learned something, but it's not one for where I didn't pay attention and kind of stumbled. That's never going to be the case. What is up, you lovely listeners? Sorry to interrupt the episode, but I did want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, MikeMe.com. MikeMe has helped this podcast sound incredible over the last year and a half, and I put out every single episode with 100% confidence that it's going to sound amazing and it's going to be absolutely legit. Not to mention, having them work on my show has helped save an incredible amount of time and headache for me. So it's been one of the best investments that I've made in a very, very long time. If you have a podcast or you're looking to start your own, be sure to go to mikeme.com forward slash oversharing. Again, that's mikeme.com, M-I-C-M-E.com forward slash oversharing. And you'll get an episode edited for free when you purchase one of their podcast bundles. This is an incredible service. You're absolutely going to love it and you're going to love the team. But before I speak too much, let's get back to the episode. Let's talk about x.ai for a little bit. Again, every time I tweet about this or talk about it, I'm just so excited about how much it's like improved some of my productivity in my work life because I no longer have to go back and forth to schedule a meeting. And to the listener, if you haven't checked out x.ai, check it out because all you got to do is CC Amy. She figures out the time. You pre-program where you want to go and life is peachy. It's awesome. But you already had some successful ventures here. But one thing that you brought up that you might have wanted to talk about today was the idea of bootstrapping. After three successful exits in your career so far, how did you apply like the bootstrapping mentality to the development of x.ai? I'm a huge fan of bootstrapping, which doesn't mean that you should be disallowed to take in capital from elsewhere. So I've done of the four prior ventures, two of them have been entirely bootstrapped, as in we own the company in full on the day we exited. Or the other two where we took in investors on the day of exit, you need to kind of divvy up that check and send some of it back to your investors for where it was suddenly more fun to take the money than send some of it back. Yeah. Uh, just to be here brutally honest here. So it's not that one is necessarily better or worse than the other. It's just that they are two distinct ways of attacking a new venture. Now, I do think you can, and most often would probably want to start out with the idea that this should be entirely bootstrapped, unless it's one of those for where, well, we're not going to create a new airline or rocket or self-driving car without a long, proper research and development period. And for that, there's no day one without external capital. But let's just uh, put those set of ventures into a separate bucket. I do think many ventures can be started entirely as bootstrap ventures, side gigs, you doing some initial kind of research. And I've always tried to do that in my own ventures. And I can give you a good example, good set of examples of what we did here at X.AI, which is the original epiphany was not one for where we figured out there was pain attached to that of setting up a meeting. Everybody had figured that out exactly two hours out of college. It was just one for where we thought perhaps there is no software yet that turns standard because the existing solutions force you to kind of change context. So if you get some sort of email that asks you if uh, we can meet up because you're going to be in Manhattan in the first weeks of uh, September, I don't want to go elsewhere. I want to be able to kind of 
solve it right there in the same context. So we thought that might actually be a good attack angle. But like many ventures, you don't know. It just feels like it could be. So the first thing I did was, I'll give you a couple of kind of steps here. There's been plenty of things in between. So me and my VP engineering of my prior venture, uh, we had just exited that company, agree with each other. Hey, I think there's something here. How about uh, I become your assistant and you become my assistant? I want us to kind of figure out what does it take if I'm an assistant for him and if he's an assistant for me? That seems very easy to do, but I want us to kind of both feel some of the pain that came attached to that of arranging somebody else's meetings. I want us to kind of see how quickly would I start to kind of assemble a set of kind of templates, mini macros, and what have you? And it was a ton of fun. First of all, I immediately hated it. I said, <laughs> fuck, not only do I hate to set up my own meetings, but now I have to set them up for Alex? What the hell? This is the worst. And I immediately started to put in place a kind of small set of templates where, okay, people come in, I'll say this, I'll do that. If they t- take this turn, I'll do this. And, and that was exactly what we wanted to kind of figure out. Even on one other person, do you start to see some patterns? Because if you see no patterns and the whole thing is completely ad hoc on each request, there's just no way we can build a machine to kind of solve this. As in, or at least we wouldn't dare to do so. So that worked well. We had a ton of laughs uh, that came attached to it. And it was so fun to hand it over. Uh, and we just created a shared email account that was our assistant. So we kind of played that persona. What we now wanted to kind of figure out, this was all kind of bootstrap while we did our jobs to kind of just kind of see if uh, there was anything here. The next thing, I hired a full-time assistant. And then I teamed up with uh, 40, 50 of my kind of friends, friends-ish, and said, hey, guys, I know exactly where you're at in your career. You don't have any assistant. I'm going to pay for it. You all have this assistant, and you can now uh, use him, her, as you... Uh, see fit, but only to set up meetings. And then we wanted to see, now, they don't know each other, as in they have no idea of what the quirks might be. We're going to see if we can help this assistant to kind of find some of those patterns, and you allow me to go through all of the email threads so we can see what's going on. That worked very well. And that uh, turned out to be certainly the first signal that people wanted it, and it also turned out to be the first signal that I actually think we can build some set of models around it so a machine with high margins can do this versus a person. So those were the first two steps where probably invested less than $10,000, which is not nothing, but it's a whole lot cheaper than spending four years of your life on something that is unsolvable. That's pretty sweet. I have a question for you. Is there any possibility of X.AI being integrated into your text messages? So if you and I are trying to get you know, a coffee, let's say, I can just text you instead of putting it in my email? Not uh, today, but we've technically built it with that in mind. So once a message arrives in our system, just to take a step back here, now I'm going to go all geek on you, but really yes. the, the, the way to think about X.AI is not as a personal assistant, per se, but as a scheduling engine. It's a scheduling engine for where you connect uh, all of your calendars. Uh, You might uh, have a business calendar. You'll certainly have a personal calendar. You might uh, 
do some work for that sports team. So you might have multiple calendars attached. You have a set of rules for how we should view all of those calendars. So you'll create some templates for where when I do meetings in the office, that's how I want you to view them. When I ask you to kind of set up a meeting with investors, this is how I want you to view it. So it's really about how do we extract availability from all of these calendars, given both when you're free, when you're busy, the templates that you've designed, the constraints that you describe on the fly. And we can then pull them out and expose them to people. And the simplest way we can expose them is just send people a link. That's super easy. Like go to uh, calendar.x.ai slash Dennis and you can see my availability. So that's the most naive way you can kind of expose it. But no more naive that you can describe how it should be viewed. Because it's not just a picture of you free and busy uh, situation. It's a picture of that particular view for those particular people. So those you can share on text. That's, that's nifty. Now, the more kind of sexy part perhaps is that you can also email Amy, Andrew, or scheduler at extra.ai and describe in natural language, help even with my kind of funny Danish English uh, grammar, what you want done. But as soon as we receive that request, it turns into just text. We have no idea whether this arrived from Slack or from email or from elsewhere. So the whole system is built on the idea that it's just a message. Now, the reason that we picked email to begin with is that the vast majority of meeting requests arrive in your inbox. We are starting to see, though, them disperse into other channels, such as messaging, say Slack, but also, if I should give you in priority what we see from our audience, it is, as you suggested, text, LinkedIn, and then a set of uh, kind of more personalized messaging apps like uh, WhatsApp and so on and so forth. So those are kind of the three next uh, frontiers for us where we also want to participate. Very long answer. That's me going deep into the roadmap here. No, I I love that a lot more. You know, I wish we had three hours to talk about all this stuff because, I I mean, you're just full of so much experience and all of the things that you're doing, really. So I appreciate the, the context on that. With X.AI, is this another venture of yours where you see, you know, potentially selling off and exiting as well too? Or, I mean, it seems you look like a pretty young dude, like still a lot of vibrance in your life. I feel like you got a couple more businesses in you. So I do this for the love of the game. And I don't think you should do anything, but just for the joy of the journey. I don't think you've heard any pro athletes tell you that, oh, I went into this for the medals or for the money. That was all just side effects. I did it for the love of the game. And if you ask me, I just fucking love being an entrepreneur. As in, this is a life well spent. So I have a couple of additional good games in me. I am most sure. Now, to answer your question, I'm not sure you can set out with a particular exit in mind. Or if you do, I think the likelihood of you getting there is smaller. Just like you can't set out to win the championship next season. What you can set out to do is find some people who are in it for the love of the game, build a fantastic team, drive towards some destination, which might arrive sooner uh, rather than later. But that's what you're building. And if you kind of translate that back into what we do here is 
trying to build some good product that your customers love and might even be willing to pay you money for and keep doing that. And if you keep doing that, then opportunities arrive and you can then decide what to do with those opportunities. Now, opportunities such as some form of uh, M&A. Now, in that, there's probably two schools of thought. There's the kind of Y Combinator school of thought for where Corp Dev, VC, M&A is evil and a complete waste of time. Speak to them only three weeks before you need it. Without questioning whether that is good or bad, that is just one school of thought for where I focus all of your time just on making good product. The other school of thought is this is a business for where the outcome is uh, uncertain. So I should be constantly exposed to the universe around me so I can best navigate it. So I'm of that school of thought, which is that every week in any venture, I will speak to perhaps on average two or three uh, investors slash exit scenario type folks. I speak to uh, VCs below where I need it, above where I need it, uh, outside my verticals. I speak to corp dev from all sorts of organizations where, sure, I could see us end up there. I could not see us end up there. I speak to investment bankers for where I'm not hiring them to do anything, but there might just be something they know that I do not know. And that is, again, a very small data sample. But how we've realized all of our prior exits. I'll give you a couple of good examples here. So when we sold our prior, prior venture to Yahoo back in 2008, it came about because I spent an hour and a half with some investment bankers from RBC for where they could both kind of serve as investment bankers and or as growth capital. We were in no situation to raise the kind of $50 million that they wanted to inject into some type of business. We were way uh, too small for that. But I spent time with them anyway. Nine months later, they sit in a meeting with Jerry from Yahoo, who says, you know what? We are missing this component in our business, and we're looking to kind of either build or buy. What do you guys think? Well, when they went to the whiteboard, they added me to that list. I said, you know what? I challenged this guy. They're doing some interesting tech. I think you should add them to that list. They called us, and I think 13 days after, we'd done the deal. That was it. I said, that was just the right moment, but I wouldn't have been there had I not been willing to kind of expose myself. Now, the last exit where we sold uh, our company to Outbrain, that was me being willing to speak to, it was their COO, so you can call it kind of corp dev, for kind of a set of meetings on, this is what we do, this is kind of where we headed, this is where I see the overlaps, no particular agenda. Obviously, me knowing that they're always looking to kind of figure out where can we strengthen our technology. And then I think it was three months later after one of those chats, that came back as in Dennis, you know what? Some of those overlaps you described, they're not crazy. Do you want to explore that? And then we explored it. But those two were not the only ones. I've done, like, extra, I, I'll go look at my spreadsheet here. Let's say I've done you know, this year alone, 110 chats. I haven't sold the company 110 times, but I'm doing those chats so that one day, if that's what we want to do, 
well, at least I'll be on the list and I can be the one to decline. Instead of, I was not even on the list, they barely knew I existed. So that's my kind of, I think, two schools of thought and I picked the, the latter. I love that, man. It's super insightful and I honestly loved being able to learn from you today and I appreciate it. Before we ask the last question and today, uh, if somebody wants to connect with you, how can they find you? So I am everywhere on the internet under Dennis Mortensen. So you can certainly find me there, Twitter or LinkedIn or what have you. If you do try out X.AI, that's a free edition. So I'm not selling you anything here. And think there's something which is either awesome or a little bit off kilter. Or I actually didn't get that, Dennis. Shoot me an email. I'm on dennis at human.x.ai. I would love to know. That's awesome, man. All right. Final question of today. I know you work out every single day and every two weeks you were taking a full walk up and down the island of Manhattan. But what I find to be the most important attribute of this is which ACDC song do you wake up to to get fired up to go to the gym on those days that you don't want to? Back in black. I love it, man. <laughs> <laughs> There's just no beating it. I said, that, that is it. Yeah, I love it. Uh, to the listener, thank you so much for your time and attention. We appreciate it. If you love the episode, we would dig a five-star review. And if you didn't like it that much, feel free to stick it to us, but subscribe anyway, because we're going to have a ton of incredible people just like Dennis back on the show. Thanks again, man. Cheers. Cheers.